Are you confused about real food and what's healthy and good for the planet? Do you need the facts about local, organic, and sustainable food? Well, get ready to change the way you eat. Get ready for The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober, right here on Green Earth Radio. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Appropriate Omnivore on Green Earth Radio. My guest today is Jamil Abdiyev of High Bricks Nutrient Dense Foods. Plus, my desserts will tell you how to live appropriately in the upcoming week. But first, let's go to the appetizers and find out what's happening in the world of real food. As two major food safety rules are being proposed, over 270 organizations, food businesses, and farms are requesting an extension from the Food and Drug Administration in order to have time to analyze these bills. These rules set standards for on-farm activities in growing and harvesting produce and also create new hazard analysis and risk-based preventive controls for food manufacturers, including on-farming processing of foods. I have deep concern that these rules could end up hurting small family farms, so I hope these various organizations are given more time to review the proposal. Next, a survey by the NDP group says 30% of adults are interested in avoiding or cutting down on gluten in their diet. While gluten allergies and sensitivities are more common, others simply avoid it believing they'll be healthier. NDP Chief Industry Analyst Harry Balzer says it's also growing and calls it the health issue of the day. I personally don't see all forms of gluten as bad. Modern wheat has been heavily hybridized, but there are many ancient grains that don't pose the same gluten problems. Also, when going gluten-free, it's best to avoid any of the highly processed gluten-free products. A year ago, ABC News did a report about Beef Products Inc. using lean, finely textured beef, or what's become known as pink slime. A year later, three of the company's four plants have closed and their revenues have dropped from $650 million a year to $130 million a year. It's refreshing to see that many people have concerns over their quality of meat. Hopefully, we can soon see news stories letting people know how bad corn-fed beef is. For more info on how to find meat free of pink slime, check out the Facebook page No Pink Slime in My Burger, which is maintained by the Weston A. Price Foundation. Also, the USDA has deregulated Monsanto's Roundup Ready alfalfa. This comes even after plant pathologist Don Huber warned the USDA about a newly discovered microscopic pathogen found in high concentrations of other Roundup Ready crops that could be causing infertility in livestock and diseases in crops. This is further proof of the USDA not being concerned about the best interest of people and allowing Monsanto to keep creating these frankenfoods. As for the general public when it comes to what they think about the safety of Monsanto's GMOs, they remain uncertain. A Huffington Post YouGov poll found 35% of Americans believing GMOs are dangerous, while 44% said they're unsure. But despite being undecided on whether they're safe to eat, 82% said GMOs should be labeled, while only 9% said they shouldn't. It's great to see an overwhelming support for GMO labeling. If only we could see that support in the ballot box. There's always hope for the next GMO labeling initiative in whatever state takes it on next. And now for the main course, which today is high bricks farming. The idea of organic is now something that almost everyone is familiar with, whether or not they follow it. Organic farming certainly makes for a huge improvement in the agricultural world. But organics aren't perfect. We need to take things further, and the concept of high bricks nutrient-dense farming 
presents great standards of where to go next. Whereas organic is about using natural fertilizers, Hybrix is about using fertilizers that replenish our soils. Hybrix is also superior to organic because Hybrix actually has a way to be able to tell if crops fit the label by use of a refractometer. While people know about organic, the vast majority of food is still conventionally grown. But that hasn't stopped people from already taking things to another level and venturing into high bricks. Here to talk with me about this is one such person who's done an excellent job of finding different growers of high bricks products and educating people as to what exactly high bricks foods are. So now, let me bring out my guest, Jamal Avdiev, who started the company High Bricks Nutrient Dense Foods, which has the slogan, Distribution of Way Beyond Organic, Biodynamic, and Pasture-Raised Products. Jamel, welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me, Eric. Oh, absolutely. It's very admirable what you do, and I think, you know, this is such a new ground that you are one of the innovators in this and one of the people that's letting everyone know what High Bricks is. Yes. Unfortunately, I think the people in the field have not done a very good job in explaining what it's, what all of this is about and haven't really focused on trying to make this something as mainstream as grass-fed beef is or as, or as pasture-raised chicken is. Now, one of the things about this is, while this term may be new to someone, really, Hybrix is about going back to how agriculture used to be. So it's not really a new way of growing food. What is the history of Hybrix nutrient-dense foods? The history is that some people in the past were very good at farming, and they did a lot more than the mainstream organic farming approach of today. They understood how to keep the soil good and not let it become depleted. Unfortunately, this was somehow not passed on in such a way that it became mainstream. So what Hybrick's Nutrient Dense Farming is, is it's a collection of these approaches from the past, and it's using science to refine it, to improve it, to make it even better than it was before. Is the idea of labeling something as Hybrick's Nutrient Dense a rather new concept? I think it's not really new in that we have labeling for certified organic and there's a whole list of different things that have to be done for a product to be laid of, to be labeled in such a way. And high bricks is just an extension. So with organic, you can't use certain pesticides, etc. You can only use organically approved ones. You cannot use certain fertilizers, etc. There's a whole list of things that you can do and that you cannot do that is outlined by the USDA. It's the same thing here. With high bricks, you're just measuring nutrient density. And one of the things that I look at is initially, even before I start measuring nutrient density, is, is a grower using principles of high bricks nutrient dense farming. And there's many ways to achieve this, but there's a common set of things that are that are done to achieve it. So if somebody's not using these principles, I sort of stop there because 
somebody could be, for example, as a hypothetical example, be blessed with great soil. Well, my question is, how long is that going to last? Is that sustainable, given the environment today of poisons out there killing microbiology, of the, the modern type of farming that constantly is mining nutrients out from the soil without replenishing them. So I, if, if, if that is even the case, somebody is blessed with fantastic soil, I want to make sure that they're doing things so that, that those results that they're getting are sustainable. And one, one of the means is using hybrid nutrient-dense farming. I know that one of the authors that influenced you into getting into high-bricks, nutrient-dense farming was Dr. Weston Price. What are some of the other authors that had an influence on you as well? Another one is one that is featured in Dr. Price's work. His name is William Albrecht, and he, is, he was very influential in his time. He was the person that Weston Price cited in his book that there's all these principles I learned about traditional people eating certain traditional diets, and oh, by the way, the soil has to be very good. It has to be properly balanced, fertile, for people to get the most from the food. And he was already concerned about soil depletion at the time, and he had, he basically cited Dr. Albrecht in his book. There's another person also that is has very influential in this movement and his name is Dr. Kerry Reams. His approach of farming actually was taking Dr. Albert's approach to the next level, to a higher level, in terms of quality, nutrient density, etc. In addition, was Dr. Maynard Murray an influence to you? Yes. He his his work is part of the work of Dr. Kerry Reams. Reams was aware of the importance of trace minerals, and he knew that they were lacking in our soils even at his time, which was like 1940s, 1950s, 1960s. And the, he focused on something called soft rock phosphate, which is one of the most important fertilizers used in his method of farming, which is called the Reams method of agronomy. And this soft rock phosphate, it has 66 different trace minerals. However, the work of Dr. Maynard Murray shows you can use full-spectrum ocean-based fertilizer, which he termed as sea solids, and those have around 90. So there's other minerals that are not present in the Reams method that actually certain people, certain students of Kerry Reams, they they integrate the the the, <clears throat> the work of Dr. Maynard Murray into the Reams method of agronomy to even make it better. I imagine that the depletion of soil and of nutrients is something that did certainly happen over time. Has there been a more major depletion of soil in recent years? Yes. Because of commercial farming around the 1930s, 1940s, 
there was a lot more folk on producing a lot more food because of a rapidly growing popula- population. And what happened was the minerals from the soil were being mined at a much faster rate. Then also other things were introduced, such as pesticides, fungicides, etc., chemical fertilizers. And a number of these chemical fertilizers started killing the microbiology of the soil, which made the minerals less available. So as a result, the crops started getting less minerals. And then at the same time, there was ignorance of certain minerals, like, for example, calcium and trace minerals. So over time, crops were getting less and less and less of these important minerals. And then how would you say that hybrid nutrient-dense farming is the best way of any in order to replenish the soil and the minerals? I think it's the best in that what it does is it gets food, the food back to the levels where it was, say, 100 years back, 200 years back, 300 years back when we had virgin soil in this country. And in certain ways, it actually goes beyond that, in that the soil was today, even the last 500 years, is was not quite as good as it was, say, thousands of years back, in that certain trace minerals that were there before, for example, you had a tsunami or, or something like that where the ocean somehow was was on the land, temporarily at least, that those minerals, many of those minerals have disappeared because of natural processes like ocean. So there have been patterns in history of natural mineralization, then demineralization. And we're at a period right now where it's a demineralization outside of the current, uh, the, the recent things that have happened over the last hundred years with, with mass commercial farming. And that gets a lot into the work of Dr. Murray, as well as Robert Kane of Seagri, who I interviewed last week, who talked about how this sea salt or sea mineral solids can help bring these vital nutrients back into the soil. Do you think that salt is an important fertilizer for hybrid nutrient density? Yes, I think it's important. I, I recommend it to every grower that I work with. I don't specifically recommend Robert's product in every case because his product has sodium, and some soils have a lot of sodium, so it's a process of balancing things out, that if you have way too much sodium, you actually start destroying the plants. So if that is the case, and there's simple ways to test the sodium content in a given plot of soil, then what I do is I recommend other products that have the salt taken out. For example, there's one called C-Crop. And are there other type of fertilizers as well that you would recommend to use? Absolutely. Some of the more common ones are high calcium, low magnesium lime, and another one is gypsum. And you might have heard about the lime. It actually comes from a term that was 
was used it was used in fung for thousands of years. You might have heard about it. It's called liming. It's basically application of ground limestone. So those are some of the more, most common fertilizers, but there's other additional things such as carbons. So, for example, a lot of people in nutrient-dense farming, they use molasses, sugar, spraying on the plants and on the soil because what it does is it builds up carbons. So I think there's a lot of different types of fertilizers. Is this kind of a thing of a crop-by-crop -crop basis and even more specifically based also on the area where it's growing? Yes, certainly the area is uh, one important factor, and different crops do need different uh, applications of fertilizers. Like, for example, there's, there's various schools of fungus. For example, in the Reams agronomy, a lettuce will get a different fertilizer recommendation plan than, say, a tomato or a, a peach tree. So different plants need different levels of nutrition, different different balance. For example, the lettuce will need more calcium, whereas the potato the tomato will need more potassium. And I know that then once the vegetables are grown, there's then another process than just find the right fertilizer. So what happens next in terms of growing hybrid crops after, say, the vegetables have grown? Well, what I do is I test nutrient density levels. I've created a list of criteria, a lot of which basically borrowing from Dr. Kerry Reams. And the first thing that I look at is the bricks. The BRICS is a measure of overall nutrient density levels. It's like the inexpensive quick way of figuring out where you're at overall without paying thousands upon thousands of dollars analyzing every single vitamin, every single mineral, and other phytochemicals in the plant. And is this where the refractometer comes into stage? Yes. Yeah, that the BRICS is a measure of the of uh, the refractometer, which is a tool in chemistry that measures solids. And now, of course, there are also a lot of nutritional benefits of high BRICS. One of them I know is that it helps improve your calcium. Explain how it does so. The BRICS itself tells you quite a bit about calcium levels. If you look at the refractometer, what you find is there's a reading, and there's, a, there's usually a lot that, that tells you what the reading is. It's quantified, so it could be one. The typical refractometer is from 1 degrees bricks to 32 degrees bricks. So if the line that tells you, let's say you have 15 bricks, if it's straight, what that tells you is there's a lack of calcium, and the lack of overall mineral balance. Now, if the line is cloudy, that tells you that there's good calcium levels. I know another advantage that it has is 
it has advantages of improving your teeth. How exactly does that work? Hybrix nutrient-dense food has something called electrochemical compound colloids, which is something that is quite unique to the Reams method of agronomy and the teachings of Dr. Reams with respect to health. He created a health program. It's called Reams Biological Theory of Ionization as Applied to Human Health. And one of the things that he learned about through research was that today's foods and the foods of his time lack something called these electrochemical compound colloids, which have quite a significant influence on the teeth when your body is lacking them is when you start having problems with your teeth and also your bones. So in many ways, tooth decay is a function of deficiencies of these colloid complexes. And I know last time that you were on my program, you talked a little about how you had had cavities while you were vegetarian. Did Hybrix personally improve your teeth? It didn't in that I already had discovered Weston Price long okay. before the Hybrix nutrient-dense farming. However, I've only been eating Hybrix nutrient-dense foods for only so long, so I'm going to be curious to see what happens next time I go to the dentist. For all I know, that my teeth can have gotten a lot better, but even though I don't have any cavities, it may be that overall they're getting better in other ways that are not maybe apparently obvious to me. Maybe it, it will be shown on bone density scans, for example. Okay, so that's been pretty recent, but I think that'll be interesting to find out what your dentist said, and I think it would also be an interesting thing to look at people that have had cavities and be put in as a test group of trying high-bricks nutrient-dense foods. Absolutely. One of the things that people that practice RBTI or the Reams Biological Theory of Ionization as applied to human health, they have observed is that people, people tend to remineralize their teeth just like people who were using the protocol of Weston Price or Ramiel Nagel. What happens is there's there's plenty of cases where, for example, fillings pop out because the teeth remineralize. So the way the way people have observed this is that they use a supplement that's called mineral, which is an extract of soft rock phosphate, which has these electro electrochemical compound colloids. And Carrie Reams came up with the, came up with this uh, supplement through basically extracting them from the soft rock phosphate in a way that what you have is you have a colloidal, almost 100% available mineral. And the side note, this was naturally present in the water of the Hunzas and other long-lived people throughout the world, and they drank, they drank it. So it's sort of not it's sort of nothing new. It's sort of like taking the uh coral calcium from the Okinawa water and putting it in just a 
concentrated supplement dry form. That really explains a lot of it. I mean, a lot of this is everything old is new again because, I mean, grass-fed beef, I mean, that's something that has really been around a long time. I mean, that was the first way beef was done. And, I mean, organics, that's really just the old way. So I think that fits that this isn't really anything new, as I was saying at the beginning of the show. And I have to say that's a good person to bring up is Ram Nagel, who wrote the book Cure Tooth Decay. Is he an advocate of hyperx nutrient-dense farming? Well, I met him in the last conference in 2012, and he was very much interested. He asked me all kinds of different questions. I basically explained to him that these elements of higher sim, much, much higher trace minerals, these electrochemical compound colloids, when you have all these things in the food, at much higher levels, levels that are conducive to optimal health, what happens is, it's, it, by, by definition, this becomes like a simple improvement of his program. Take it to the next step. It's not really saying you should eat this or you should eat that or eliminate that. It's just taking whatever he's saying and just changing the quality of the food. So instead of having just a regular organic tomato, you have a high bricks nutrient-dense tomato. Wow, so you've even taught Ram Nagel a thing or two. <laughs> yeah, he was very much interested in some of the principles in RBTI that address patterns of tooth decay, going kind of taking, taking what he did and kind of refining it in certain ways. For example, in RBTI, there's an observation that Tooth decay, in general, is a pattern of excessively high pH. So the solution is to bring the pH down to the optimal levels, to where it's neutral, about 6.4 to 6.7. So you can do Ramiel Nagel's program, but you could choose foods in a specific way to start controlling your pH assuming the foods will work, but there's other measures that you could take to deal with the pH if the foods don't work and they don't always necessarily work. And there's other examples too, like for, like for example, tooth decay is a pattern where there's a deficiency of calcium phosphate, the calcium compound. So the suggestion for people with tooth decay is that they should look into eating foods that have cal calcium phosphate as a dominant calcium compound. What Gary Reams did was he, he used a spectrometer to isolate, check out what kind of calcium it was in many different foods. And not all calciums are the same. They have different effects on body chemistry. So for people with tooth decay, the best calcium is calcium phosphate, and a Western price source for that is bone broth. You might wonder, well, why, why is bone broth such an important thing in the Western Price Foundation? I think that may explain it. And then also bone, bone meal, consuming bones. Bones actually have electrochemical compound colloids, just not as much as something like soft rock phosphate, but next to the soft rock phosphate, they're like the dominant 
source. So I consume bones on a regular basis. That's certainly very Western price. The whole broth is beautiful. So I think that certainly fits very well with it. I think everyone should be consuming bone broth on a regular basis. Now, I know there's some foods that are just considered to be calcium and trace mineral-rich foods. What makes hybrids different and better than those foods? Yes, there are certain foods such as, for example, milk or cheese or buttermilk or bone broth that are very calcium-rich. It's true. Now, with respect to high-brick nutrient-dense farming, I looked at some charts of foods that have lost various trace minerals and other and major minerals like calcium over time. And what I see is that there's one <clears throat> well, there's one source coming from the UK. Over the last 70 years, milk has not lost as much calcium as, for example, spinach. But it's it's lost a lot of the trace minerals. So it's so the high bricks nutrient dense foods, a lot of them, they have much higher calcium content, in particularly vegetables, meats, nuts, grains, seeds, and fruits. But fruits not as much for whatever reason. Fruits and other and other things like nuts they haven't lost as much. Mineral minerals as vegetable meats. We'll talk more with Jamil Evdiev and the benefits of Hybrix nutrient dense farming after a word from our sponsors. To your health, Sprouted Flour Company offers organic sprouted grains and flours for all your baking needs. We have more than 34 sprouted products, hundreds of recipes, and are always available to answer your flour and baking questions. Whether you're making sourdough breads, French baguettes, birthday cakes, granola, or pancakes, let us be your sprouted grain and flour source. Certified organic and kosher, featuring 20 gluten-free sprouted products. Visit our website at organicsproutedflour.net or call toll-free 877-401-6837. What is a healthy diet? Conflicting information is thrown at us daily. Help chart your course to wellness with a steady guide, the Weston A. Price Foundation. Our nutrition and health information is helping many families recover from degenerative disease and nutrient deficiencies. Join for only $40 a year and receive our quarterly journal. Visit our website, westonaprice.org, for more details. And we're back. I'm talking with Jamil Ivdiev. He has a business called Hybrex Nutrient Dense Foods, and we've been talking about the advantage of Hybrex. And most of our discussion has been about crops, but after all, this show is called The Appropriate Omnivore. So are there hybrids, nutrient-dense versions of things such as meat and dairy? You bet. Absolutely. It's just basically applying the principles of hybrids, nutrient-dense farming on pasture is is all all it is. And you can have... You have grass-fed beef. You could take that up to the next level by taking that beef and putting it on high-bricks, nutrient-dense pasture. And the same thing for chickens. 
it would be they would get hybrix nutrient dense grains, hybrix nutrient dense um, pasture, or some a lot of farmers feed produce, so hybrix nutrient dense produce. So yes, absolutely. So then would that have to do a lot with fertilizing the grass with the same type of fertilizers that fertilize the vegetables that get the hybrix nutrient dense foods? Yes, absolutely. Yes, and it's you would you would you would apply you would create a program just as you would create a program for for growing various types of produce. Right, as well as the animals that can eat things such as corn and some grains like chickens, you would feed them hybrix nutrient dense versions of those foods. Yes. That's correct. And now I know another advantage of Hybrix is that it's able to last longer and grow bigger. How exactly is it able to do that? Yes, it lasts a lot longer. That's actually one of the things that I look at. That something that is Hybrix, if it doesn't have significantly better shelf life, and this is with respect to things like produce, fruits, vegetables, it's a little bit harder to gauge with something like nuts because nuts are usually dried and they don't have problems as much problems with spoiling, rotting. So currently the growers that I work with whose products I represent, the minimum shelf life difference is with a blueberry grower that I have, it's his blueberries last 10 times longer on an apples-to-apples basis relative to the average blueberries out there in the market, whether they're conventionally grown or organically grown. However, that's only the beginning. The goal is to achieve the saying that top quality produce does not rot, it dehydrates. So it's going to have a super shelf life. If you leave it in a climate such as climate that we live in here in L.A., it's going to dry out because it's a dry climate. Now, if you put the produce in cold storage or a certain environment that is controlled for moisture, et cetera, you can have the stuff just sitting like for years at those levels, and it's still perfectly good, as hard as that is to believe. And... Of course, this has nothing to do with anything related to GMO. A grower can do this in an organic fashion and achieve these results. The reasons behind this are many. Some people say it's higher, higher levels of calcium. Other people say it's the higher mineral content, and also with the higher mineral content, you have higher sugar content of the food. But also, you can have higher protein and higher fat content. Then others say it's the trace minerals. There's, there's studies that support all of these claims. And then there's my experience, something I haven't seen all that much in the, in the textbooks in this field, that say my experience indicates it's the microbiology. When you have balance of microbiology, there's certain, there's certain bacteria in the soil that go into the plants because all, all 
crops have bacteria. If you don't have bacteria, you have nothing growing. These bacteria have certain properties that make, make the plants resistant to molding. And I've certainly had the pleasure of having your blueberries. You make these great dried blueberries that taste kind of like raisins, and you're often bringing them to the Weston Price potluck meetings. What are some of the other Hybrix products that you sell? Currently, I have Hybrix nutrient-dense heirloom grains, several types of heirloom wheat, farro, and heirloom rye. Those are in the, in the whole grain form or meal to order. Then I have Hybrix nutrient-dense almonds, several varieties. And one variety, it's quite interesting in that it's not even a variety that you would see in the store because usually they're so bitter, they're just sent to confectioners to make various sweet things to kind of round out the bitter aspect of the almonds. But with Hybrix nutrient-dense farming, these bitter almonds, they become sweet and they have a very complex flavor. I've become very into the whole heirloom grains, and grains certainly are a bit of controversy in the world of real food because some say that grains aren't traditional foods or others say that our grains have been hybridized so much that we shouldn't consume any anymore. So obviously, you have a stance that certain grains are good. Why do you say that heirloom grains are the way to go? Well, I learned that looking at the book Wheat Belly, which talks about all the different problems associated with hybridization. It actually led me to start thinking, well, what about some of the other crops outside of wheat? What about cucumbers and whole slew of other vegetables? Are these hybrid versions ones that are really good for from a nutritional standpoint? I have my doubts based on looking at lab tests of hybrid nutrient-dense foods that are heirloom versus hybrid ones. It seems like the hybrid ones overall have less nutrition. So I think that grains are okay if you can handle them, but I know there's a lot of people that don't handle them, and I think that's that's fine too. You don't need to have grains. There's been societies that never touched grains and they did great. But if you're going to have grains, I think having high bricks, nutrient-dense heirloom ones are by far the best. Heirlooms, a lot of people who have heirloom grains that have had various problems with grains tend to do better. When you throw in the high bricks, nutrient-dense dimension, you get even better results. You get you respond a lot better because the food digests better because of the proper calcium levels and all the other nutrients. So I think that part of the problem with grains today, among other things, is just the food is low quality. It doesn't digest well. And I imagine also a problem that you're supportive of the solution is having the grains properly prepared, either by soaking, sprouting, or fermenting. 
Yes. Uh, I don't think sprouting is enough. And I would say the bare, the bare minimum is fermenting. I don't think there's any way to get away from that. Soaking, so, uh, sprouting is fine as long as afterwards you ferment it. So I don't, just because this is, these grains are high bricks, nutrient dense, I don't think somehow they're, they're an exception. You can eat them like the standard, uh, American consumes grains, which are not soaked, not fermented. If it is fermented, then do you think it needs to be sprouted? Well, sprouting has its own benefits in in terms of adding certain nutrients, etc. cetera. Uh, I think that's fine. It's not necessary, but some people like it, and there's nothing wrong with it. But you don't think that necessarily something that's fermented from a sprouted grain versus something that's fermented from just a whole grain or even from something more refined makes that much of a difference nutrition-wise? It may, it may. There's some, there's, there, I was looking at the label for one sprouted grain product. Apparently it increases certain nutrients. So there, there, there's merit in doing it. And you talked about a couple types of heirloom grains, but from my understanding, spelt, einkorn, those are also considered heirloom grains? Yes. Yep. And do you agree with the current belief that einkorn is the best type of grain of any of them? Possibly. If you look at things from the chromosome standpoint, the premise that the lower the chromosome count, the better they are, there may be a difference. I don't know what the if the difference is huge. I, looking at the data, Faro has 20-something chromosome and einkorn has in the teens. I don't know what the difference of consuming one versus the other is in relative terms to something like consuming modern hybridized wheat and consuming farrow. Right. Well, I know that certainly the thing about einkorn is that it is the oldest one, so they say that it's the least hybridized, like it's most true to the original form. And I know spelt is one of the newer ones. I've heard some say spelt is the closest to wheat in terms of gluten content. Do you think spelt probably ranks lower among the heirloom grains? Yes, if you if you go by this theory of the more of the, the ancient the grain, the better it is. But I I don't I think these differences are not as big as the differences with the modern hybridized grains and general heirloom grains because the problems associated with wheat in the research out there, they started showing up when people started consuming the modern hybridized wheat. So essentially, if you go with an heirloom grain instead of a modern hybridized wheat, then you're pretty well off. Yep. You're, you're, most people respond a lot better if they, if they don't, if they don't, if they're, if they can handle grains, they tend to respond better. For those who can't handle any grains at all, 
then it's irrelevant. Then they shouldn't need grains. And the heirloom system is certainly something that I've got interested in, mainly because of getting into the heirloom grains, uh, in part by your recommendation. And so now I've gotten into heirloom tomatoes and potatoes and lettuce and carrot. Is a good portion of the hybrid nutrient-dense foods heirloom? Not necessarily, but what I do with growers that I work with is I try to persuade them to go into the heirloom direction because heirloom has better flavor and heirlooms are, they go hand in hand with, with hybrid nutrient-dense farming in that they have a lot more potential for, for high levels of nutrition, for better nutrient uptake. And there, there was also an Acres article written years ago that basically illustrated that, for example, an heirloom tomato versus a hybrid tomato, you have the following kind of situation. The heirloom has the capacity to absorb a wider spectrum of trace minerals than the hybrid one. So it could be like, just to throw out a number, 50-something or 60-something different minerals for the heirloom and maybe 20 for the hybrid. And in addition to heirloom plants, I know also a part of Hybrix is wild foods. Wild? It, Hybrix happens with certain wild foods, but it, does, it doesn't, just because something is, is wild doesn't mean it will be necessarily Hybrix. Right. In, some, in, in a lot of cases today, wild foods tend to have better nutrition because the soil has been untouched and hasn't been really messed with. However, my analysis shows that when you do very good work with hybrid nutrient-dense farming, you go, you take the food in terms of nutrient density beyond what it is in its wild state. So this is where I think something like farming, it actually improves the quality and nutrition of food. And other than the fertilizers, are there other ways that nutrient-dense farming differs in practice from organic farming? Yes. In that the focus is on maximizing nutrition and maximizing everything, maximizing yield at the same time, all these various attributes that farmers want. Density, so so for the value farm proposition for a grower is, for example, if a grower grows tomatoes and sells by the pound, if you increase the density, the grower is going to make a lot more money. So the emphasis on is the emphasis is on optimizing everything, not just anything goes. Like for example, a lot of organic farmers completely overuse compost and they get way too high levels of potassium. So you have a, a mineral imbalance. Classic example of that is celery. What have you, what is the, what is the typical flavor that you think of when you, when you eat celery? 
Ooh, flavor. I mean, I sort of think celery is sort of one that's, I don't want to say flavorless. I mean, it has, I guess, kind of typical greens flavor, but I kind of consider it kind of light on flavor. Bitter? Is it bitter? Um, yeah, I would say so. Okay. Well, that's because of the excessive, excessive potassium levels. A high bricks, nutrient-dense celery is going to be sweet. So this is just one example of not of organic farming doing something. The intent is good. Certainly it's better to use composting than a lot of what conventional growers use. Well, problem is about better than that. <laughs> well, problem is that too much of a good thing can be bad. So, with hybrid nutrient-dense farming, everything is very carefully thought through. It's not just like some there's some approach. Somebody said do this, do that. It's it's about examining things. What is the end result? What happens when you put this much calcium? There's a system to figure out how much to put on of various minerals, when, etc. And this is this is something that is totally lacking, or very much lacking, in the organic foods movement as a whole. There's simply not enough science to look at whatever we're doing. Is this the right way? Is this the best for health, for plant health, for human health? I would say the, the person who sort of started look, thinking this way, one of the first was William Albrecht. His, his approach is organic but, and a lot more mineralization, very carefully looking at all the different factors of the ecosystem. Now, how much of your diet would you say is high-bricks, nutrient-dense foods? I consume each of my current products, along with some others in the pipeline, four times a week. So I consume either the farro four times a week or one of the one of the wheats four times a week the rye four times a week blueberries four times a week almonds four times a week so i'm trying to eat as much as i can and at the same time i know that i don't do well i wouldn't do well eating blueberries every single day in every single meal so the way i look at things and this is actually a concept in RBTI is that you want to eat a wide variety of foods because different foods have different minerals. Even in the, with the high bricks version, some some like a, let's say uh, what's an what's an example? Certain high bricks nutrient dense food may still not be a very good source of zinc, whereas another one may be. So so different so plants absorb nutrients even with something like high bricks nutrient dense farming. There's certain limits to their uptake. Right. I know certainly the dark berries, they do have an advantage for a lot of things, but also they can have a problem if you take too much of them considering you're consuming too many sugars. 
Yeah, some people don't do well on sugar. I guess to be more accurate, a lot of people don't do well on excessive amounts of sugar, and there are some observations that people such as Ramiel Nagel have made too much can cause tooth decay, etc. So I think uh, every person has to discover for himself or herself what the right balance is. Like, I I consume them four times a week, and it's fine for me. I, I consume quite a bit of fruits, and that hasn't affected me, whereas other people have been affected by, t- by tooth decay, among other things, consuming quite a bit of fruits. And in addition to selling these great high-bricks, nutrient-dense foods, I know you also do a lot of speaking about High bricks, and in fact, one of the events coming up is this upcoming Tuesday at the Weston A. Price chapter for the West Side of L.A. So, tell listeners a little about that. Well, it's going to be very similar to in a, a presentation that I had last year in Pasadena. I'm going to talk about the benefits. I'm going to talk about the story of mineral depletion in the soil. Now I'm going to talk about how is this done? What are what are some of the principles of high-bricks nutrient-dense farming? Like, for example, we use foliar sprays. Why do we use foliar sprays? And by the way, that's, that's not sprays of pesticides or anything. It's, a, it's actually sprays of these fertilizers in micronized powdered form on the plants and the soil to make to increase the nutrition, the nutrient density of the crops, and also improve the plant health at the same time. So there's going to be a whole host of different topics in in what in as much time as I'm going to be allowed, which is going to be somewhere between two to two and a half hours or so. And for people in the area that would like to attend Tell them what time this event starts and where it will be held. It starts at 7, and there may be an opportunity to do some networking, talking before that, so you may get the ball rolling around 7.30 or so, and probably be up until around 9, 9.30 to 10. And that's pretty much it. Okay, so you know how to attend his thing. It's going to be this upcoming Tuesday, 7 o'clock, at the Unurban Cafe in Santa Monica. And that is a chapter meeting for the West L.A. Santa Monica Weston A. Price Group. And in addition to that, how would people get your food if they're interested in it? Well, currently I sell to private buying clubs and individuals I ship and I'm setting up some locations in the LA area and other areas locally as drop-off spots, and I'm looking at starting to go to small grocery stores. And also, I do, as a additional thing, consulting, so I'm working on trying to get farmers to do this in various parts of the country so that if people want it locally, they can get it so that one of these days 
everybody's going to have access to high-bricks, nutrient-dense food, and it's going to be the real organic, not the organic that's available today on a mass level. It's going to be the this, this superior organic. I look forward to that day where everyone can have easy access to high-bricks, nutrient-dense foods. So before we go, give the listeners the address where they can find your site and learn more information about your products. My site is highbricksnutrientdensefoods.com, and that's spelled H-I-G-H-B-R-I-X, nutrientdensefoods.com. All right. Everyone, you've been listening to Jamil Abdiev of the company Highbricks Nutrient Dense Foods. He is giving a speech at the Unurban Cafe for the West L.A. Santa Monica chapter meeting, and we're going to hear in a little bit some other events going on this week. But before we go, I just want to thank you, Jamil, for coming back to the program and educating all of the details of Highbrick's nutrient-dense farming. My pleasure. And now for the desserts, how to live appropriately in the upcoming week. A new pizza restaurant has opened in Culver City that serves the pie on a sourdough made from wild yeast. The place is called Wildcraft Sourdough Pizza. And for all of us omnivores, They've got all types of great meats for toppings. Prosciutto, meatballs, fennel sausage, chorizo, pepperoni, porchetta, pancetta, and of course, bacon. For more information on it, check out the website at wildcraftpizza.com. Also, the producers of the documentary Food, Inc. have a new film about hunger in the U.S. called A Place at the Table. Directors Christy Jacobson and Lori Silverbutch feature three people struggling with being nourished from a single mother to two grade schoolers. To see if it's come to your city yet and what theater it will be playing at, go to magpictures.com. And finally, this weekend in Anaheim is the annual Natural Products Expo West. This is where exhibitors unveil their new products in the natural foods world. Anyone in a related trade can attend, and if you do end up going, you might run into me as I'll be covering the event for my blog. There will be many great exhibitors there, such as To Your Health, Strauss Dairy, Wholesome Sweeteners, Bob's Red Mill, Eden Foods. Also, Organic Valley will be holding a party Saturday night to celebrate their 25th anniversary. To register, go to expowest.com. That's all for this week. Next week, I'll be giving a preview of the Weston A. Price Foundation's Wise Traditions Conference in Detroit, Michigan, as I interview Michigan native Kelly the Kitchen Cop, who will be speaking at the conference. For more information on my guest, my news stories, and my recommendations, go to my website at appropriateomnivore.com. Okay, well,